I invite you to take your Bibles today and turn to the book of John. We'll be in chapter 9. We have trekked through chapter 8. It took us a few weeks to get through uh, Jesus' work there at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, But now we have come to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is a most fascinating chapter. It's a very convicting chapter as it deals with Jesus. Uh, It starts with an interaction he has with a man that we'll see today and goes from there showing us uh, who Jesus is and what he's done. Again, that Jesus is the Son of God and, and there is life in him. And it's so perfectly illustrated in the sign that he performs here at the beginning of John chapter 9 today. And what we're going to see here in this passage is the light of the world displayed. If you remember in John 8 uh, that Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world and those that would follow after him would not be in darkness. Of course, darkness refers to being lost in our sin and and separated from, from God. And throughout the scripture, sin and, and following God are always set against each one another as sin being darkness and following God being light. And so here today we see the power of Jesus displayed and throughout the next couple of weeks we'll see the message of Jesus displayed and the interactions that he has once again with the religious leaders of Israel who uh, oppose him in these things. I invite you to follow along as we read today John chapter 9 verses 1 through 12. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, said they, said, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Father, we thank you now for the time we have set aside within our, within our service here today to open your word and to study it together. We ask that you would meet with us over the next little bit, that you would use your Holy Spirit to illumine the words of Scripture and apply them to our hearts today. We ask that, that like this blind man, you would open the eyes of those who are blind, that they may see their sin, and they may see the light of Jesus Christ, and they may give themselves to the Savior in faith and trust. Lord, we ask for Christians here today, that you would use your word in our hearts, that you would convict us uh, of the sin that we continue to hold on to, that you would convict us of the apathy that we still harbor in our hearts, that we're not really motivated to share the gospel with other people and help us to see the challenge you issued to your own disciples here today, to, to look around us and see the work that needs to be done. Would you draw us ever closer to you? Would you help us to realize that the calling of a disciple isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card but it's a calling to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Or may you have the freedom today to do that work which only you can do. May we walk out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard your truth proclaimed and you you have done that work in us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I really hate not being able to see where I'm going. You know, driving the dark roads of rural Michigan late at night or the rural roads of Michigan in a rainstorm are not my idea of having a good time, okay? Especially since I grew up near the city of Atlanta where there's a streetlight on every corner. I particularly dislike wandering through my own home in the dark. And when you're the parent of small, small, I cannot talk today, four small children, that's hard to say, okay? 
When you're the parent of four small children who all love Lego bricks, that is just asking for trouble in the middle of the night. Okay, and if you don't believe me, step barefoot on a Lego in the middle of the night, and that will test your sanctification. Okay? Because I don't like not knowing where I'm going, and because I don't like not being able to see, I really have a hard time imagining what it's like to be blind. I mean, that's just a hard thing to think about. And here in John chapter 9, we meet a man who has, as the scripture tells us, has lived his entire life that way. He was born blind. And here in John 9, we see Jesus in an incredible display of compassion and power change this man's life once again proving his deity. And we see that, that as the light of the world, this miracle that Jesus performed perfectly illustrates what Jesus also does in the hearts of men that are blinded by sin. And what you see in this passage before us, passage before us today is that Jesus' power as the light of the world is vividly displayed in the lives of all transformed by him. These are the ones through whom and in whom Jesus vividly displays who he is, the people whom he has transformed by the glorious power of himself and through the power of his word. They are reflections of who he is. And, and, and so if we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, our lives should be that vivid display of who Jesus is and what he's done. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, see what he says today and see the message uh, that's seen in the Gospel of John over and over and over again. This is Jesus, the Son of God, and in him there is life. In him there is light. So let's look today at this passage and we'll we'll break down these these few verses here in about three sections. And we see first of all in in verses 1 through 5, we meet the, the man in our story and he's a man who lives in darkness because he suffers from the plight of blindness. We read in in John chapter 9, verse 1, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So John 9 here, and you understand, we we just wrapped up a whole section here in John 8, which all took place at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it all took place there in the temple, and it was all kind of one cohesive unit that one thing after the other. Now you get to John 9, and the scene shifts. Uh, it changes uh, from where it was. And we're not really told much. It's kind of ambiguous here, right? We, we just read here that Jesus passes by as we open the scene. We're not told where he is or when it even is. And over the years, some have offered supposed deducted answers to those questions. And I would just remind you, the, the trouble is when we don't have a direct statement from the Scripture about when it is and where it happened, all we can give are these supposed deducted answers, which, by the way, tells us where it was and when it was doesn't really matter. What matters here is, is who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, suffice to say, we know that this event happened in Jerusalem, because the characters that are mentioned later on in this section and the places that are mentioned in this, in this section today, uh, they, they're things that are from and people who are from Jerusalem. We also can assuredly say that this is after the Feast of Tabernacles. That, that ended in our previous account in John 8. And also it's before what's known as the Feast of Dedication, which we'll see coming up here shortly in the next couple of chapters. And so Jesus recently then has had the latest recorded conversations we have with the Jewish leadership. And there in chapter 8, he exposed their sin. He revealed himself clearly as God once again. And in chapter 8, he declared himself the light of the world. And so here in chapter 9, the light of the world shines forth to all men. Jesus, as the light, shines. And by that light, some will see, while others will be blinded, remaining in their sin. And so this entire chapter, as I said earlier, is one fascinating and convicting whole that takes place. Yet for today's purposes, let's examine the event that leads us to the rest of the chapter's events. And so to do so, we have to meet this man in need. And as Jesus, as we'll soon see his disciples, pass by this location, wherever it is, they behold a man that we are told suffers from congenital blindness. This is the only time in Scripture that we are told of a disease or illness or condition that one, that, that, that one has that Jesus will heal that they experience from birth. In other sections, we're not told that this is something they experience from birth, but here, this is the only time in the life of Jesus we're told about that. 
And blindness is not uncommon for people to experience in Jesus' day. We read in the Old Testament, speaking of blindness, we see that Jesus had different encounters with the blind in his recorded ministry. And those who were blind, and like this man, they were alone, uh, they were reduced then to begging. Uh, they, they did not have the ability uh, to hold down a, a job, right? They, they couldn't work because of their condition, so therefore they had to have another means of sustaining themselves. And we notice here from the very beginning, we're told in verse 1 and then also in the, references that, in the reference that the disciples make in verse 2 that it's well known this man was born blind. And we don't know how that, everybody knows that. We don't know if it's, this is somebody that people knew, you know, that's the guy who was born blind. He's always been in that spot. He's always there begging. Or perhaps maybe he's telling his story to people uh, that are passing by. He's, he's calling out these things. Uh, whatever the case, the details of his life circumstances are known, and they begin to, to create questions in the life and the hearts of the disciples. And these questions are quickly verbalized in, in verse 2. You see here, the theological conundrum that the disciples come across. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? So here, for the first time since early in chapter 7, we see the disciples back on the scene. And as they observe this man's plight, and once again, they, they understand that he's been blind from birth, they begin to have some questions that race through their minds, and they seek clarification from their rabbi, from their teacher, from, from Jesus. And to understand some of the questions, we need to understand some of the popular Jewish teaching in that day. So the popular Jewish teaching, uh, when the disciples and Jesus were, were ministering, was that all suffering in one's life could be traced back to a personal, specific sin. So if you suffer from some sort of illness or plight or, or affliction in your life, you can trace that back to some sin that you committed in your life, and that brought on this, this curse or this horrible thing that happened to you. Because like all humans, they had to reason through the hard questions of pain and suffering. And no doubt if you spent any amount of time on this earth, you also have had to reason through that. You've had to wrestle with the idea of pain and suffering that comes into your life or another person's life or someone that you and your own heart and mind and your own humanity and sinful self maybe think they don't deserve something like this. Why is that coming in their life? And that view that the Jewish leadership and those who taught it had was also colored by the legalistic practices of the Jewish religious hierarchy. And if you've, you've, you've studied the book of John, or maybe you've been with us, or you've read the scriptures and the gospels, uh, you've come to understand the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these people who were in the Jewish uh, religious leadership, they were very legalistic people, right? Especially the Pharisees and the scribes who were part primarily of that Pharisaical group. And they believed that in keeping the law of God, they could earn salvation. They could, they could earn a right relationship with God. The basic thinking of legalism, whether it's in Jesus' day or today, is this, that if I do good works, I will earn God's favor. How? By forcing him to bless me. That's what legalism is at its core. Maybe you don't verbalize it that way, but that's exactly the thinking. And if I do all the right things, and I keep all the little laws, and I do good things for people, and, and this and that, and if I, if I do that, I'm going to force God into giving me good things. Because he has to reward it. He has to look at it and say, oh, there's, there's someone who's doing the right things. So the counter-argument to that is this. That if I sin, then I'm going to get what's coming to me. Right? If you're legalistic in your mindset, you have to recognize that. That doing good things is going to force God to bless me. But if I do bad things, God's going to punish me. And so therefore... If that's the thinking, you understand where the disciples' question is coming from, right? The disciples wish to know them. Who's responsible for this man's suffering? If he suffers a, a horrible, debilitating condition, right? His entire life has been one of begging. He hasn't been able to experience the things that other people have experienced. So someone has to be responsible. And so here's the conundrum. He was born that way. You see the, the point? If everything goes back to something you've done, and he was born this way, there's two possibilities. Number one, they ask, 
who sinned, did, did he sin? If he sinned and caused this deformity, they would need to assume that he sinned while he was still in his mother's womb. I know some of the moms in here, your babies kicked you before they were born. You think, well, that's pretty sinful, right? You know? And it wasn't uncommon for people to believe within Judaism that these, with all of these men's backgrounds, that babies could sin before they were born. Outside of, of the of the Judaism circle, there were some Hellenistic Jews who had begun to buy into Greek philosophy. And in that Greek philosophy, they believed in the soul's preexistence. And so thus, one born with a condition such as this man had done something wrong in another life. And so therefore, he was born this time blind. Both of these, by the way, have no basis in the scriptures. Okay? And so thus, the men are perplexed by what they see. Because the second option they presented that was perhaps was perhaps this that the man's parents had sinned and therefore they caused him to be born this way and while that may seem like the simpler answer to accept i mean you hear the the argument of of how this person could have been born such a way if he had sinned you think no there's just no way this one really isn't simple to accept either and really has no biblical basis because God was quite clear in his law about these things. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, we read, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So God's expectation for his people was based in who he is, and that is this. You are responsible for your sin. You are not responsible for someone else's sin, and someone is not responsible for your sin. You will suffer the, the, you, the punishment and the judgment for your own things. Now, certainly, we must make a delineation here. There are many children who have suffered the consequences of sin from someone else's life. Have they not? Children may be born with life-altering conditions deformities, setbacks, and more, and it may be due to a mother or father's choice to live a morally loose life or to indulge in substances and vices uh, while, while that mother was pregnant with that child. Certainly, in the life of Israel, an entire generation of Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because their ancestors chose to disobey God. Did not that next generation suffer the consequences of, this, of the choice that those people made? We have to understand that just because there are consequences, that doesn't mean they were being judged or punished for that sin committed by the parent. There is a difference there. There is a difference between suffering judgment from God and suffering the consequences of someone else's sin. It doesn't mean that your life is easier. It doesn't mean that your life, you won't have these difficulties and struggles. But it doesn't mean that you're being judged by God. And by the way, folks, something we have to take into our own hearts and lives and understand the consequences of our sin are always greater than you and I can imagine. One of the great lies of Satan in your life is this. Hey, you know what? It won't matter. Nobody will ever know. No one will ever be affected if you do that. My friend, look around. Look at the families that are falling apart in our world because a mom or a dad made a choice of sin. And they are experiencing judgment in their own life, but the consequences and the fallout of that sin are far greater than that. Look at a church. When a pastor makes a decision to go into sin, who pays for that sin? The church suffers the consequences. Our choices have consequences. And as has been said time and again, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of that sin. But for our intents and purposes here today, we have to understand that the focus of what the disciples are asking is not Who is suffering the consequences, but who is being judged for their sin? Is this man suffering judgment for his own sin, and thus he was born blind? Or is he suffering judgment for his parents' sin, and thus he was born blind? And at the end of the day, we could rightly say that sin in general brought this blindness on this man. Could we not? Because without sin, there would be no death, there would be no handicaps, there would be no deformities, there would be none of these struggles in life. But that came upon the human race when Adam, the representative for all mankind, failed to obey God in the Garden of Eden, and thus sin and brokenness entered our world. 
But here on this day, the question remains in the minds of the disciples that if all suffering is caused by sin, and that's their view, right? That this, this, this suffering is a direct judgment of God on this life. Whose sin has caused such plight in this man's life? And it's a question that, that a disciple in Jesus' day would ask their rabbi. And so Jesus' disciples do just that. And Jesus then shows them there's not always the correlation they think exists. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus shows them God's glorifying purposes in this man's life. Jesus answered, I'm sorry, wrong chapter. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So Jesus now makes it clear that that clean link between sin and suffering that people long for is not always there. Because again, in our self-righteous, legalistic mindsets, that's something that's very clean, right? I did wrong, God punished me. This person did wrong, God punished them. But Jesus says that that link is not always as clean as we think it is. That this man was not guilty of any sin that resulted in his condition, seeing as he wasn't born yet. Nor was he going to suffer judgment from his parents' sin. But instead, he experienced such hardship in his life in the sovereign plan of God that God might bring glory to himself. Now, this is not the same as saying God caused this man to be blind out of some sort of spite to this man. Such things that we experience, such as blindness or other hardships, result from the fall of man and from sin itself And that is the root cause that is never brought on by God, but it is allowed in his sovereignty. And it means that God, in that providential sovereignty, outshone this man's condition in his eternal plan to use it for the exaltation of himself and his eternal plan for the salvation of mankind. As Pastor John MacArthur put it, God sovereignly chose to use this man's affliction for his own glory. Understand this, that before this man was even born, God knew his afflictions, his struggles, his questions, his burdens, and anything else that would come across his heart. He also knew that it would be in this place, on this day that we read, that Jesus would come by. He knew the conversation that would be had between the disciples and Jesus. He knew the act of Jesus. He knows this. Why? Because he is sovereign over all things. And he uses all things, even the afflictions that we suffer for his glory. They are not out of his control, but they are firmly in his grasp. In fact, as you read verse 3 there again where it says, but the works of God should be revealed in him. Another way of translating and probably perhaps a better way for us to understand this, this word revealed in verse 3 is the word displayed. That the works of God should be displayed in him. God was going to display his wondrous work in and through this man's life, affliction and all. My friend, this gives us not only a greater perspective, not only on this man's trial, but also on our own trials, does it not? Certainly, God uses trials and hardships to expose sin in our lives. There are times when in our hearts there is an obvious link between the trial and the hardship we face and the sin that God is trying to root out of our lives. The scriptures do teach that that happens. However, There are surely things in our lives we cannot explain. We experience great trials. We suffer incredible hardships. And we have many unanswered questions. And in those moments, we are tempted to seek a way out, to grow bitter and angry with God, or give up and sulk. And in so doing, we we can miss the blessing of seeing God do a great and mighty work in our lives in the hardship. And when we try to bail out of the trial, we can short-circuit the glorious purposes of God that he has for us in that trial. And don't get me wrong. I am not speaking against using the wisdom that God has given us to to perhaps seek medical help in in a physical trial such as as something like this. Or, Or using the resources that God has given us to seek the answers in his wisdom and with his guidance. 
But we need to do all of this with an eye towards obeying and following God, not how fast can I get out of this, but asking him for his help and to see his glory in this. And Jesus then highlights for them, the disciples, the responsibility that he and his disciples share together. We continue on in in verse 4, and before we read verse 4, let me tell you that as you go back and look at the the original manuscripts and translate that this this word I in verse 4 probably is better translated the word we, so that's how I'm going to read it here. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus calls for his disciples here to participate in the work of God. He, Jesus, is the one, and that's made quite clear here, who has been sent by God. But they are also called to the work as his disciples. And so here, Jesus is seeking to refocus his disciples and to show them his and their calling. The disciples were focused backwards here. And by that, what what I'm saying is, they're looking at this man's life and they're looking back at it. And they're saying, who sent? Who caused this? Why is he suffering in his life? Who's done wrong? While Jesus is focusing forward saying, don't look back, but look at what God and his glory and his sovereignty is going to do in this man's life. Look at who I am. They look at this man as a theological conundrum, but Jesus sees this man as one who is in need and in whom he can help to the glory of God. And Jesus reminds the disciples that there is an urgency to the mission to which they have been called. He uses here the picture that they must work the works of him who sent him while it is still day. He talks about the day and the night. Jesus says that there is a coming separation when they will not be able to work. By the way, Jesus is referring here to his death on the cross. That is the night that is coming. And during that period, as Jesus dies on the cross, the disciples will not be doing the work of God, but will be in darkness. And eventually, after he rose and ascended, the Holy Spirit would come, and in Acts, we see the church age begins. But Jesus says, while he is on earth, his mission is to shine as the light of the world. And Jesus' ascension, after his resurrection, does not quench that light. But we have to understand, that light definitely shone brightest when Jesus was on earth, did it not? So Jesus' words to his disciples about the urgency of their mission, that they need to work while it is still day, applies to the disciples of Jesus today. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has called you to do his work. And that work includes living for him, serving God with your life, and sharing the message of hope and the gospel with others. Paul would later admonish admonish his readers in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. One thing we never seem to have enough of in life, but yet we spend so freely, is our time. You and I don't know when the Lord will return. It could be at any moment. And so we need to thus engage in the work of God's kingdom. Jesus calls his disciples today, as he did then, to make disciples, living for the glory of the kingdom until he returns. Jesus has been gone for nearly 2,000 years. Let not 2,000 years turn us into apathetic disciples, but let us work for the night is coming. Let us work because Jesus will return and we will go to be with him. But when when that happens, the things we read about at the end times will commence. We want to be faithful servants of the king. We want to be sharing the good news of the gospel. We want to be living our lives in such a way that exalts him. And now back in the present account, we see the work that Jesus does in this man's life. And this is the sixth sign that's recorded by John. And so here in verses 6 and 7, we see Jesus' work. John writes for us here. 
It says, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So first of all, in this in 6 and in the first part of verse 7, we see Jesus' work. The work that God will do in this man through Jesus' next sign is recorded here by John. And, and you'll see that word sign will come up later in this chapter. And I just want to remind you that that's the word John uses when he talks about miracles. He uses the word sign. And that word carries the idea of an authenticating mark. That this is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. You can place your faith in him. And that's used here once again, as I said, later in the chapter. Jesus did these things to prove his Messiahship to the glory of God. And notice here the details. Jesus uses his his saliva mixed with dirt, and what he does is he creates clay to place on this man's eyes. Now, as you might expect, because I've alluded to this earlier in the sermon about some things we don't know, so we come up with all these explanations, there have been many who have offered opinions on why Jesus chose this method or the possible meaning behind it. And again, as is the case when the Bible is silent, I think that we should recognize all guesses are speculations at best. Doesn't mean there's no merit in them, but we're not going to take our time to go off into them today. Because I feel, as do many others, that the best explanation here is that Jesus is is inviting this man to truly place faith in who he is and what he can do. Let me ask you this question. Okay, I know it's Sunday morning, but I'm going to ask for a little bit of audience participation, okay? Could Jesus have simply given this man his sight with a word? Absolutely he could have. I mean, could Jesus even have just have thought, I want him to see, and he would have all of a sudden been seeing? Well, certainly, right? Have you read Genesis, right? We're told that, that Jesus, as God, was there at creation. And, and how did God create these things? He spoke, and they were there. So, so would that have taken anything away from who Jesus is? Absolutely not. Jesus here, the light of the world, is also most interested in the souls of those he interacts with. He wants them to place their faith and their trust in him, not just for some physical healing, but as their Lord and Savior. And so from the beginning... He calls this man to faith in himself. He encases this blind man's eyes in this clay that he has made, and he tells him to go and wash it off in the pool of Siloam. Now, the the pool of Siloam is located in the southeast corner of the city of Jerusalem inside the wall. And it was fed by water that came from what's known as the Gihon Spring. When Hezekiah, who was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, feared a siege from the Assyrians, and this is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, he made a tunnel from the Gihon Spring to feed water into the city so that if a siege came, they would have water inside the city. And that's recorded also in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, if you want to look that up later. This is the origin of the water that was also used in the water-drawing ritual during the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you remember us talking about that uh, back in chapter 7 and chapter 8, this is where they would go. They would go to the, to the pool of Siloam, and they would get the water and, that, that they used in that water-drawing ritual. And this name, Siloam, John tells us very clearly, means scent. Now, that name probably originated with Hezekiah because the water was being sent from the spring, through a tunnel, into the city, and to make the pool of Siloam. But it's also a very appropriate thing in this account, is it not? Because what do you have here? You have a man who is sent by Jesus to the pool, right? Can we say it this way? He was sent to the pool by the one who was sent from the Father. He is sent there to wash his eyes as Jesus has instructed. And in so doing, he would be exercising faith in Jesus. And you can't help but see, if you're familiar with your Old Testament text, that that there are some undertones here similar to the account of Naaman the leper in the Old Testament. How many of you remember that, that one from your time in Sunday school or you're reading the scriptures? 
Naaman the leper sought help from Elisha, and he was told to go and wash in the Jordan River. And I want to highlight that like that account, there is nothing magical or special about the body of water that's mentioned or any other medium here. Okay? Honestly, I want to make sure we point this out as well. There is nothing even overly emphasized about the exercise or the amount of faith of the individual. One of the most foolish things that gets taught in churches is this. Now, if you just had enough faith, God would do X, Y, Z. My friend, have you met the Apostle Paul? Would you say the Apostle Paul was a pretty decent Christian? Yes? No? Yeah. Would you say that the Apostle Paul had a lot of faith? Yeah. Did you realize the Apostle Paul wrestled with a thorn in the flesh that God would not remove, that his grace would be sufficient? I'm sorry, you can't sit there and say, if you only had enough faith, X, Y, Z would happen in your life. And that's not the point here either. This is not that this man had welled up within himself some amazing amount of faith. The power of healing belongs to God. And this man had to seek out help to get to the pool, perhaps even. And then he had to ex- but he did have to exercise faith, did he not? He did have to believe that Jesus, this is what Jesus said to do, so I should do it. He had to believe in Jesus' words and his power, washing his eyes there. And in so doing, he would be trusting in the word and power of Jesus. And that's where our real hope in life lies, in the word and the power of Jesus Christ. Look what happens in the second part of verse 7. We see his obedient response. So he went and washed and came back seeing. In the second half, we see this man does indeed place his faith in Jesus for his work. And as I said a second ago, it's not about the amount of faith, but he, we do, it is emphasized here that he did place his faith in Jesus, right? He did follow through and obey. And can we just be honest for a minute? That he received a command that seemed most odd? I mean, imagine you spent your entire life blind. The next thing you know, you hear about Jesus, you hear about this guy, you hear him talking to his disciples, and maybe you've heard of what he could do, maybe not. And next thing you know, he's making mud and he's put it on your eyes, and he wants you to go to a specific spring. Can you just can you just agree with me? That's a little odd, right? Like that's okay. But he believes in what Jesus has said. And in so doing, he receives physical light from the light of the world because now he's able to see for the first time. What is around him? One author I read this week said that, that John almost hilariously understates what happens here, right? Did you, did you catch that? He came back seeing. Give me more, right? I mean, he's, he's never seen anything his entire life. And all of a sudden, he sees trees and people, right? And he sees, he, he sees the, the spring where he washed his eyes. He sees the, the, the temple. He sees Jerusalem. He sees his neighbors. He sees his parents. If they're, we read later, they're still around. Never seen anything. What an amazing display of Jesus' power. He has walked in darkness, never beholding the glory of the created world. But now he has a new lease on life, enjoying it to the fullest. And the verses that follow in the coming weeks, we're going to see that there's not only a physical transformation that's taking place, but a spiritual transformation that takes place in in this man's life as well. And this man's faith in Jesus is rewarded both physically and spiritually. I just want to point out that his story that's seen here today is not unlike the gospel's invitation and the gospel's subsequent work in the lives of those who place their faith in it. Understand that at its core, the message of the gospel tells you you need to give up your own efforts. Jesus doesn't ask you to try harder or do better but he invites you to abandon your own self-efforts and trust solely in him. The message of the gospel isn't, well, I mean, Jesus just said, I need to do a little better and have a little faith. The message of the gospel is, stop trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus Christ. And my friend, this goes 
against all of our sinful and selfish impulses. Because we are very proud people, and we think we can make it on our own, and we're prone to believe, hey, I don't need anybody else. But that's not true. You need Jesus. You need faith in him alone. And I know there are some in here today who, like me, you grew up in a Christian home. You've been in church your whole life. You probably came to know the Lord at an early age, even. You know what you're tempted to think? Well, I'm not really that bad. I mean, I haven't really done anything really bad, right? I mean, I hit my brother over the head with a truck, but it's not like I killed him. I might have wanted to, you know. I'm not really that bad. My friend, sin is sin before a holy God. And all sin is looked at the same. It makes you guilty before him. Or you're tempted to think, as maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, I don't really need to keep depending on the Lord. I just kind of do what's right now. You spent some time out of your Bible and found out you don't do what's right because you still wrestle with sin. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation, but it does mean you've taken a few steps back in your sanctification, right? And we fail to apply that. We need Jesus in our lives, not just day by day, but moment by moment. And if we obey the call to place our faith in him, we will be met with the same effectual power this blind man experienced in the story. The power that restored sight to a man who had never seen in his entire life is the same power that gives you life spiritually. We find spiritual light that illumines our sin-darkened soul, giving us eternal life, and that will change your life. The physical transformation of this man certainly changed his life. The last thing we see today are the immediate responses that happen in this man's life in verses 8 through 12. First, in verses 8 and 9, meet the confused neighbors. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He was saying, I am he. So returning home, those around this man can't believe what they observe. In fact, some of them are convinced this is a completely different person standing before him. I think it's interesting that you note in verse 9 there that there is a contingent of people who would rather believe and find it easier to believe that this is a completely different man who just looks like that guy than they would believe that something miraculous has happened in his life. And again, I would point out to you that the word of who Jesus is and what he's doing, it's not like it's a big secret. I mean, people know who Jesus is and what he's doing. But they would rather believe that this man had some mysterious doppelganger in his life who could actually see who had taken his place. But this man continues to declare the testimony that he is actually the man who used to be blind. And again, I would highlight here just for you that, that at the end of verse 9, you may have heard it when I read it, perhaps and to help us better understand the, the tense of the Greek verb here, not just he said, I am he, but he was saying. He was consistently saying this over again. I am he, I am he, I am he. You could just feel the guy like, this is me, okay? Don't evict me. I'm that guy, and I can see. And we see his changed testimonial in verses 10 through 12. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So the neighbors finally say, okay, what What happened, right? How did your status change? I mean, wouldn't you have some questions? And in response, this man gives a very factual account of all that has happened to him in his life. He doesn't know much about Jesus, does he? He just knows his name. My friend, that is the gospel full yet condensed. It is Jesus. He can't even tell them where Jesus is. I mean, did you notice here? I mean, having been blind... If they said to him, okay, you're going to go with us and we're going to find Jesus, he couldn't even point the guy out, right? Because he's never, he's never seen him. What he does know 
is that his life has been transformed. He has been given his sight, and his life is now new. And yet again, this man's physical experience mirrors the spiritual change that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings into our lives because the gospel not only transforms one's eternity, it brings change to one's temporal life on this earth as well. Perhaps you can remember when you came to faith in Jesus Christ or you knew someone who came to faith in Jesus Christ, the questions begin to come out. What happened to him? What happened to her? Something, something's different. Something's changed in that person's life. I would tell you that's natural and very normal, by the way. In fact, I would say that if you've not experienced a change in your life as, a, as someone who professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you should examine your own faith and trust in your heart because that's what God does. He changes us. The gospel is transforming. The Holy Spirit residing in believers does an amazing work. This man didn't know a whole lot about Jesus, but he knew what Jesus had done. And sometimes we don't share the gospel because we think, well, I don't know a whole lot. I don't know what I would say. You know Jesus, that's enough. Just tell them what tell them what they did for you. You don't need a degree from a Bible college to sell someone the good news of the gospel. You don't have to go through an X amount of week training course and be able to, be able to tell someone how Jesus Christ has changed your life. You just need to tell them who Jesus is. And sure, it helps to study. It helps to maybe have some verses marked in your Bible or, or memorized in your head. And I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to, to find some of that. But don't let that stop you. Share the gospel with other people. Tell them who Jesus is and what he's done. This man's life takes on an even greater transformation in that he, will, he finds eternal life in Jesus Christ. And we'll see in the coming weeks that this will bring the scrutiny of Jesus' opponents down on him. But for today, let us rejoice in the power of Jesus displayed once again in John's gospel and the transformation he brings to lives, displaying the glory of God. Jesus' power as light of the world is vividly displayed in the lives of all transformed by him. Jesus is the bringer of hope. He's the healer of mankind, he's the restorer of brokenness, and he is the light of the world. He can give you this healing, this hope, this restoration, and this light in your life. He lived on this earth, ministering to needs, showing his true power, and preaching the message of himself. And these things, John tells us, have been recorded for us that we may believe them, and that through belief we may have life in Jesus Christ. Jesus calls for your faith in himself. He calls for you to give up your efforts of self-righteousness. He calls you to lay down your broken dreams of self-cleansing. He calls you to set aside your guilty actions of penance and to find help and hope in him alone. He is the savior of the world. All you need is an active faith in him. You may in your life have an affliction, hardship, Struggle, handicap, or condition that you cannot understand. You have been born with it. You've developed it. You've searched your soul. You've wrestled in your heart. You've found no answers. You long to know and understand, why do I bear this affliction in my life? And like the man in our passage today, you have a sovereign God who knows your situation and longs to show you his power and glory. He is greater than all things. And in the weakness of mankind, the power of God is magnified. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus, let your life be like the life of this changed man before us today. May you live as Jesus has called, with urgency to do the work of God. He has called us to live for him, to glorify him, 
and to spread his fame abroad. And all of this he calls us to do with his help and with the control of his Holy Spirit. And so may the light of the world be displayed in our lives. Father, thank you again for the power of the gospel that we have read here today. Thank you for the life and the ministry, the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope of the gospel found in him and him alone. And Lord, we ask today that you would make that hope known to us. That we would see the light of the world shining brightly into our hearts. Lord, we are born broken. We are born in darkness. And by your grace, we can see the light of the hope we have in you. I pray today for one who may hear this message, who is wrestling with their soul, who has tried and failed everything, who has played the game of professing Christianity, that you would call them to faith in yourself, that you would give them the grace, the courage, the boldness to respond, that they would find life in Jesus, the Son of God. For Christians that are here today, Lord, I pray that you would burden our hearts to be ambassadors of the kingdom, to share the message of the gospel, to redeem the time for the days that we live in are evil. Help us to be committed to the kingdom of God, to living for its glory and seeking uh, seeking to share it with others around us. Lord, I pray for those who are experiencing trials and hardships and afflictions today. Some are known, some are unknown. Some are lifelong, some have been brought on in the last couple of weeks. Some will come tomorrow or the next day or three weeks from now or a year from now or whenever it may be. Lord, help us to see that these things in our lives, they fall under your sovereign hand. And we can rest and trust in you. And these things can be used for your honor and your glory, even as we seek to apply the wisdom and the resources you have given us in a godly way. Help us to rest in you in the trials. Help us to see you magnified in our lives and draw us closer to yourself. Be with us now as we prepare to depart from this place. Bring us back here tonight to worship you again. May you be honored and glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.